Hello and welcome to Data Futurology, a podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and upcoming data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We learn this from current top industry leaders. My name is Felipe Flores and I am your host. Welcome to March. How crazy is that? This month, we welcome a couple of new sponsors, uh, which you'll hear more about them at the end of the episode. One of them is Data Source Services, and they uh, help data scientists and aspiring data scientists to find jobs. A lot of people have messaged me over time asking about how to find a job, how to go about it, where are the companies looking for people. And uh, now I'm really happy to say that we partner with Data Source Services to help you guys get jobs. So definitely contact them, listen to the ad at the end, and they'll be able to help you out. The other sponsor is University of New South Wales. So they're launching a Master's of Data Science program that is 100% online. It covers all your needs to get into the field and get a really good knowledge and understanding to be able to become a practitioner. Check them out online as well. Send them some love. From my perspective, we launched our Patreon page. So if you find the podcast helpful and useful and you would like to support it, I would love you to do so. That's just on patreon.com slash datafuturology. And that will help us to keep going with the podcast and keep growing it so we can help more and more people over time. Excellent. Thank you so much. Today, we will be speaking to David Niemi. He is a very experienced leader in the field of learning analytics. So David has a long, long, very impressive career of using data to help people learn better. He spent many years working as the vice president of education and research at K-12 in the U.S., and now he is the Vice President of Measurement and Evaluation at Kaplan. In this role, he oversees the efforts to improve quality of measurement across education units and evaluate how programs are created, rolled out, the effect that it has on, on students, and how to improve those efforts. He's also recently edited a book. He was one of the main editors in a book called Learning Analytics in Education. So he tells us a bit about his research and what him and his collaborators brought together in that book. What I found really interesting, and you'll hear me getting very excited with my questions for David, I was very excited to ask him about how to apply learning analytics in a corporate setting. So essentially, a lot of the learnings that they have apply to corporates, to government, to not-for-profit, as well as in the education sector. And I couldn't help myself but ask him questions around the company where I work at the moment and companies where I worked in the past. We have looked to roll out data literacy training and data engineering training or data science training. We've looked to roll that out to a number of people in the business. And I was asking him about what the, his recommendations on best ways to do that. So I had a lot of fun in the episode. I hope you enjoyed as well. Definitely uh, keep sending me your feedback. Love hearing from you guys and enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with David. How are you doing, David? I'm doing just great. Happy to be talking with you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for making the time. I've been looking forward to speaking with you and I think this is going to be really, really great. At the beginning of the show, I always like to ask our guests, how did you get started in the data space? What was it about analytics that drew you in and got you into this? Well, it's a great question. And uh, for me, the way I got here feels sometimes like wandering around in the world of education for many, many years, gradually somehow coming to where I am now. And I actually started 
a long time ago as a English teacher teaching high school and then became a special education teacher. And so I taught for many years at that level and then started at some point a computer education company with another person. I was a partner of that and eventually became, that was at the time when the first uh, Apple II computers had just come out and they came out with a type of computer that we wouldn't consider to be very portable now. I think it's called the Apple IIG or something. So we were taking small sets of those around to schools and introducing students to computers and so on because that was a time when, I mean, it's sort of unimaginable now, but nobody actually had computers in their homes and schools didn't have them and people didn't know how to use them. No, nothing like the world is today. But I became interested yeah. in that point at how the software could be better than it was because there were the best educational software you could find there were kind of these educational games that might teach you the alphabet or some other very some counting and things like that. But the capabilities seemed to me much greater than that. So I actually went back to graduate school to kind of study more about learning and how it happens and end up getting a PhD in learning science. But I was became very interested along the way in how we know whether people are learning, what kinds of data should we be looking at, kinds of tasks and, and assessments and tests and so on should we be giving to people. And that's what that turn in my career is eventually what led me to where I am now. I um, taught for a while at the university level, at the University of Missouri, and then started working with uh, private companies because the resources and the potential to do something in education seemed even greater. And in those environments, including yes. at Kaplan, where I am now, a number of things, helping people across all the different units, including some in Australia, by the way, where we have some financial nice. schools and other kinds of schools. But Kaplan now has a variety of different kinds of schools all around the world. And I work with all of them on how we can make sure we apply research from learning science, but mainly how do we know whether our students are learning and what can we do to improve that learning? So that's essentially what my role is now. So as it may sound, very interesting and challenging kind of thing to be doing, but it's something that when I started my career, I had no idea this type of job would even exist. And I'm guessing for many people now who are in school, the jobs that are going to be available to them in 10 or 20 years don't even exist now. So that's kind of how I got to the place. I love the fact that you are continually chasing your curiosity, both through your study and through your work and finding, sort of being, getting closer and closer into this area. Was that completely, or how much of that was deliberate versus seeing the opportunities as they came to you? It was kind of a combination. I would get interested in something, like as I mentioned before. And actually, the reason I got started in education at all was I was just pretty dissatisfied with how I had been taught. I actually went to pretty good schools and a good college in the U.S., but the standard mode of giving a lecture and then you read some stuff and then you write and take tests about it just struck me as not a strong enough way to teach people. Because in the end, you want people to be able to do specific things. You want them to have specific skills. And there was no emphasis on you know telling us, well, here's the skills that you're really going to be learning from this class or core or program. And here's how we're going to measure whether you've actually mastered them or not. It was kind of like, you know, you go write something and you figure out what it is. And then we'll judge whether you've done well or not based on some criteria that are known only to us and completely mysterious to you. So I was unhappy about that. Um, I think gradually moved to trying to figure out how can we do better and making clear to all of our students in any kind of educational setting what it is they should be learning and how they're doing as they go along. I think that that's a very great reaction that you had to the way that we all face education as we went through it. You started the problem and you started to go in and fix it. Well, a lot of people turn away and get turned off by that and sort of say, oh, that wasn't a good experience. So I'll go as far away from that as possible. It's fantastic that you've gone in and looked to fix it. That is a really noble mission that you've set for yourself. Well, yeah, thanks. I, don't, I mean, it, it kind of happened. I, I don't think of it for myself as, you know, sort of being noble, but I, you know, I kind of grew up with 
in college in the early 70s, right after the 60s, when lots of people were, it seems silly now, given the way the world is, but wanted to go into careers that would actually help other people, change the world and so on. So people went into the Peace Corps and teaching and lots of other things like that. So I was, in a way, I guess, part of that trend too. And um, it's unfortunate now that, of course, would be a nice goal, I guess, for everyone to figure out how you could actually do something meaningful and make a decent living at it. Because right now, teachers are, at least in this country, not very well paid and work under very difficult kinds of conditions. So it is a challenging decision to make to begin your career that way. It is. Definitely. Thank you again. And tell me, when you first came into learning science, what was the state of the industry back then? Well, with respect to using learning science, I'd say the state of education has always been pretty bad. It's so much more we know about how people learn and how they can be taught more effectively than, than we're actually using. The knowledge is there. And this has been a topic of many books, conferences, and whatever. How do we get people in education to actually use what we know about how to teach students more effectively? And there's all sorts of reasons why that's not happening. But that was the state then. And the mode of instruction was pretty much the way I've described a little bit earlier particularly at the university level. And we know that people need much more practice than they get. They need better feedback than they get. They need clearer goals and lots of other things that aren't happening. So I would say things have not changed all that much since then. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are still opportunities. And the availability of more and better data is one that I you know, think has real promise for all of us, if we can just figure out how to use it more effectively, get the information that people could actually do something with it, and also get them information about what to do, not just, here's a ton of data. We've used some really sophisticated analysis to find out that a lot of our students are just struggling. Well, we kind of already know that. What we really need is more information about how to help them, which is, I think, one of the real promises of, of the area, too. So it's for anybody who's worked a while in education, it is easy, like you said, to get kind of turned off and discouraged and just say, well, that was a big waste of time. And now I'm going to get onto something else, whatever my career is going to be about. Many people who go into businesses, then get in, then you face training or having to design training and helping other people learn. And, you know, Really, if you're going to be effective in any field, and particularly a complicated field like data science, you kind of have to keep learning through your whole career. So I think it's still worthwhile, even then for individuals, to find out more for themselves about how could I be learning more effectively and what can I do not to be discouraged and unmotivated and so on as I build my own career. I completely agree. And that's, for example, that's exactly one of the things that I'm doing at work at the moment is setting up a training program for the data department, so data science, data engineering, machine learning engineering, and et cetera. And then what does an analytics training program look like for the rest of the organization? And how can we get people started on the data literacy journey, then make them autonomous with data, being able to do analysis themselves? How do we get them excited? And essentially, I was in thinking about that training program, I was going back to the old ways of how I was taught, essentially. Right. Like, do some work by yourself, do some work in a group, attend some lectures, and spend time with experts. So, yeah, this is going to be a really interesting conversation. Well, that, what you were just talking about, building a data science program, reminds me that Kaplan has a unit, to, a data science teaching unit called Metis, and I remember uh, talking with them a while ago. One of the challenges they've had in developing the program, and, and that's presumably a program for anyone who might go into any area of data mm -hmm. science in any industry, and they were kind of struggling with the fact, initially, that while there are so many different things you could be doing as a data scientist, what is the core yes. stuff that we should teach that would apply to everybody? And it's a really interesting challenge in itself. They're still working on that. And I don't know if that applies in your context. It might be much clearer for you what it is that your data no. scientists are going to do. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. I definitely the same um, yeah. question. And how much to cover out of the different areas, how much to cover at each level of the program. I think it's a really, really interesting problem that we have at the moment in, in the way we're teaching data science 
sense. Which leads me to, I wanted to ask you about, before you mentioned about the amount of data in coming in learning or the amount of data being generated through the process of learning today, could you tell us a bit more about what that looks like? How is that data generated and what type of data is it? Yeah, there are lots of different kinds of data in education now. And I might just preface this by saying we've moved very suddenly from a situation in education where there were just too little data and they were hard to get at. I remember when I started doing research in education, if I wanted to get background data on students, for example, of various kinds, just age and what were their previous grades and all that, you'd have to go into file folders in the principal's or counselor's office and either copy and type into a database all the data yourself or kind of hire someone in the office there to do that for you. So it was very difficult and time-consuming to get any kind of data. And then you had to put that together typically with other data that the school might have put into some database. And then we moved to where districts, particularly big school districts, started putting all their data into big databases. But then data for a typical student might be in five or six different databases, not easily linked together. And if a student had moved around to multiple schools, those would be in different files from where the school the student started and so on. So that kind of data issue still exists in schools. And you're often faced with how do we create an integrated system to put all these things together and let's say be able to follow a specific student through their whole career at different schools in a school district. So that's kind of, that's one of the big challenges in the traditional, what we sometimes call the brick and mortar setting. And then you have the really sort of new and interesting challenge of all the students who are starting to study online. People can go to a completely online university, for example, or they can take one of the big MOOC courses from Coursera or um, Udacity here and Udemy, and there's all just a proliferation of these. Now, if they had well-designed learning management systems, they would be able to collect data on every student as that student's moving through the program, which would give you a tremendous opportunity to help students, to create profiles for different types of students. And if you had been doing things right, you would know what would work best for each of those students, and you could really personalize and customize the instruction for them. That's a different but potentially really exciting kind of challenge, which we haven't really mastered yet, is how to use the data flow that's coming in when students are actually learning online. That takes a lot more thinking than just the data scientists thinking about how to analyze, yes. find interesting patterns or whatever. You have to have some people who know something about instruction and what works in instruction for what kinds of students. So you yes. want your instructional activities and opportunities all built into that system too. And you know, the selection of those for individual students is driven then by your whatever data analysis you've got in place. That's right. And what do you think are the challenges or the impediments at the moment to start to marry the different worlds? I guess there's a lot of experience to come from teaching from an educational setting. There's the data science component to understand. There's the technology or digital side where we could be applying the techniques that we use for people to buy more things online. We could apply similar techniques to get people to study more or finish courses. How do you see those three parts coming together and are there any others? Well, yes, I would say you also want to consider the educational measurement perspective. How do we mm -hmm. actually measure learning? We can measure everything that a student does, every click, their whole click stream as they're working online. But somewhere in there, you've got to have some kind of a method, which could just be built into your carefully observing what they do as they solve problems or write things or do different kinds of activities. But some way you need a valid method to measure what they're learning, because that ultimately will be the benchmark for everything else that you do. Is it actually 
improving learning. And, and that's probably defined learning analytics as the collection and analysis of data to improve learning. You know, you can do lots of other kinds of analytics in education, just like in businesses. But the learning part means you have to be learning data in there. So you would definitely bring together, I mean, exactly what you said. That was a great insight about the different kinds of perspectives and people would have to be involved. You might also have within the data, in the data science framework, you might have a variety of different kinds of people too. You might have some AI people involved because let's say you're trying to make the most intelligent decision possible about what might work for a particular student. And you know, you want to be looking at what has been working for students like that student. You could almost think of it, and again, you made another good analogy there, I think, in the same way as how you recommend products or books to somebody based on what they bought. Then you look at, well, let's see, other people people who have bought something like this also ended up buying some other stuff. So you make that recommendation to people. So in effect, you want to do the same thing in a learning system, which is be looking at what works for specific groups of students. And then as a student is moving through a program and you're getting more and more information, you can get a more precise picture of what sort of profile does that student fit? And how do I want to adjust the instruction I'm giving to fit that particular student? So that requires lots of different things, including having good instructional content in there that you know from research works for particular groups of students. And I would say right now, we're still struggling with many types of students. The rates for students dropping out of college in this country are really high, like something like half the students who start in a four-year university don't finish after six years, and a small percentage finish wow. after. And the numbers are much worse for students who start in community colleges. One of our goals is how to fix that. And at Kaplan, we, um, we had a big online university called Kaplan University. And I don't know whether you would have heard about this, but that university was just was purchased not long ago, about a year ago by Purdue University, very well known, pretty elite university in the US. And they wanted to get more into online education for a broader range of students than they were dealing with, because they tend to be very selective and who gets in there and they wanted to kind of open things up more for more students. So that's basically what Kaplan University was about. It was pretty open, but just about anybody could apply and give it a try. But when you open up enrollments to all students, then more students struggle and you've got bigger challenge to figure out how do we help all the people who probably aren't ready for a college curriculum now? And you know what kinds of remedial work should we give them? Well, the answers to those questions are actually not clear cut at the moment, what we do to help everybody. But that's where I see as we've got tens of thousands of students studying online now, there is the huge potential to begin to understand better what's going wrong for all the students who are struggling and, and what we could actually do about it. That's exactly right. Thank you so much for that answer because you pointed out one of the, I assume is one of the main challenges and one of the most important points that I missed in what I was thinking before is measuring the learning. So at what point students are properly learning? Because essentially what I got from your answer is that the success of the whole thing hinges on being able to measure the success of learning. Is that right? And how do you yeah. see that going at the moment? That is exactly right. That's good measurement of learning, which means valid and reliable measures, especially if we have some confidence in, is really the foundation of learning analytics. And you can do all sorts of fancy analysis, any kind of fancy analysis you want with the educational data we have now. It's hard to see how it would make much difference because in most settings, we are not effectively measuring what students are learning. At the university level, if you think about what kinds of assessments, well, if I think about what how I was assessed in college and the students, I, my own daughter and other people I know who have been in college recently, it's kind of still the same story. It's mm -hmm. unclear why you have the kind of assignments that you have, which are basically, you know, write about something that you've read or take a test 
on something you read or whatever. And there's no clear delineation of what skills you're supposed to be having after you're done with all of this. That's the key to measuring learning effectively is getting clear what the skills are. So this would be true for data science or any other any other kind of area that you want to teach. Getting straight on what skills you want students to have because learning, this is a pretty common definition, I think we'd all understand, means that you're if you learn something, you're able to do something that you weren't before, weren't able to do before. If you want to measure learning, you kind of have to know what can students know before we try to teach them and then what can they now do after we've taught them something. If you're teaching people data science or whatever, coding, accounting, it's knowing what you want them to be able to do at the end of the instruction is the key to being able to measure effectively whether they can do that or not. That's another thing I would add on to what you said. And your insight is exactly right. The key to the whole effectiveness of the whole enterprise, and in fact, all of education is, can we measure whether students are actually learning anything or not? Correct. Because once you have that, then you can start to, or, or once you have, you're able to measure their learning very well, then we can start to look at personalizing the programs that some people might need more content to understand a topic and be able to do it in the future versus others might need less amount of content or different type of instruction. Is that where you see things heading? Yes, it's exactly right. If you want to personalize or adapt your instruction to individual students, which is really the way to do instruction most effectively, is to find out what each student knows and, and maybe something about motivational issues they might have. Maybe they're worried the content is too difficult for them, so they need some support in that. Maybe mm. they even need some extra instruction because they didn't learn some of the stuff they should have learned earlier in earlier courses and so on. All of that information is really key to being able to effectively personalize for individual students. That's exactly right. This is, yeah, fascinating. For a while, I've been wondering about what are the hurdles to personalized learning. And obviously, I hadn't thought about the ones that you're telling me now. So this is very enlightening. <laughs> Thank you. Well, well, yeah, I guess in a way, maybe some of this stuff, once you've heard about it, makes sense. Not everyone kind of thinks about or understands things in these ways. This comes about through lots of research and experience and so on. So yeah, I'm glad it's making sense to you. And I would probably add to that to personalize learning effectively for students requires not just having a lot of information about them, because basically you're adapting to information you have about the student. You could build the way the system adapts in more or less intelligent ways. It could be very simplistic, like a student doesn't get a certain question right, so you branch them off to more practice on that kind of question, to very much more advanced and sophisticated methods that take into advance, uh, take into account everything else you know about the student. Like, what has the student actually studied before, and how did they do on that work? And what does that tell you about why they might have had trouble with a specific item? And by the way, you know, how do their feelings and motivations play a role too? Because if they're not confident, or if they don't see the value of what they're doing, you want to build those things along with just their knowledge, gradually build their ability to feel like they can handle whatever's being thrown at them and get support if they don't know how to do it and all that. That's all part of building an adaptive system. But in as part of that system, you have to have the knowledge that tells you what to do for each student too. Not just what are their problems and what are they struggling with, but what do you do about it? So that's where you need motivational psychologists to help figure out, you know, what to do when somebody's just feeling like, wow, there's too much work and I don't know how I'm ever going to get all this done or whatever their motivational issue is. What helps in that case? As well as what helps if they don't seem to be understanding a particular procedure or term or concept or whatever it is they're trying to learn. 
Exactly. And for that, you need such a holistic view of each individual around the background, the motivations, changes in their, almost changes in their life as they're going through the different programs. It's an area that is affected by all of life, can be related to learning. That's exactly right. And that's, to me, what actually makes it so interesting and challenging. I mean, it's easy to think, wow, well, that's just so overwhelming. There was so much you would have to take account of. But actually, we know quite a bit about how to do the things that I've been talking about. We just haven't put it all together yet. And that's, you know, a lot of the book that I think you might have referred to that I edited recently, Learning Analytics and Education. A lot of that is about, well, uh, to make all this happen, what are the issues we have to think about? And, you know, who are the kinds of people who have to be involved in thinking about them and so on? Because it is a huge, complex enterprise, but very interesting. And, and there are examples around of people solving parts of this. We've done some work at Kaplan, for example, where we built some courses that would survey students as they move through the course, just kind of asking them, you know, so now we're about to start some new topic in finance. And how are you feeling about this? Does it, have you heard about this before? Do you think it's something you could handle or whatever? So we would ask questions like that. And then once they encountered the content, it would ask questions like, are you kind of understanding this? Are you feeling okay? Okay about this? Do you need more help? Whatever. So there were those kind of motivational questions being asked at the same time as students were being tested, given items and assessed. And you could create a little interesting little profiles of students as to whether they might be really highly motivated, but really struggling on the content. Mm. So you wouldn't have to worry about the motivation. You just have to figure out, well, they probably need some more practice on this stuff because they're really engaged. Or maybe they're just using bad strategies. Maybe they need yes. some help on how to learn this content. As opposed to somebody who might just be really worried and concerned. And I'm the first person in my family who got into college. I'm not sure I, I don't want to fail. And I'm not sure I can handle this. That, that's a totally different picture. And you might have, in that case, you might have some videos. You might say, well, we, I know something about the student. I'm going to put up a video of a student like this talking about how they handled that situation. A student who said, you know, when I first started, I didn't believe I could handle this stuff. So, but I hung in there and here's what I did and here's what I re would recommend to you and here's where you could look for more resources and so on. So there are some examples of how some of the pieces that we've been talking about could be put together and made to work more effectively in, a, in an actual course. That is extremely, extremely interesting that how the individual components are or how progress is being made on the individual components. What are some other of your favorite examples from the book around the progress of learning analytics? The chapter I wrote is really mostly about persistence. So it's been really interesting. We've done, in addition to what I was, the different ways you could think about how the analytics might be improving things for students. And one of the ways we were just talking about is how collecting data and kind of analyzing it in real time and then responding to it with messages to students or additional instruction or whatever. That's one way. Another way is to look at big data sets on tens of thousands of students studying the same content over several months or over over a year, and you can kind of look longitudinally on what's happening to a course where several thousand students at a time are studying, and you get a new group every 10 weeks, and look at those data. And we've been interested, we've looked at some courses where many students appear to be struggling, an introductory writing course, for example, and it's one of the big sort of tragedies of education in this country, that a lot of students come out of high school really not able to write well enough to succeed on almost any job. They can't write a simple, informative essay clearly and convey something to 
somebody else, much less try to make an argument or a point and support it and try to persuade somebody and something. So students come out without having those skills. And, you know, then colleges are faced with trying to do remedial work. And we were encountering that, or Kaplan University, now Purdue Global, which I'm still working with, was encountering that in one of their introductory writing courses. So we've done a number of interesting kinds of analysis. So the first thing is, it's easy to just take a lot of background, uh, we call it demographic information about students, like where do they live? What schools do they go to? Have they been in any higher education setting before? Are they in the military? You know, all this information we collect when students are enrolled. We've done quite a few analysis that show us you can predict from those data that uh, for some reason, the kind of females struggle a little bit more than males for whatever reason. And often it has to do with the fact that you have a lot of single women supporting families and working and then trying to basically go back to college and getting a degree and so on. But data just based on background characteristics of students doesn't really tell you much about what to do. So we might know that particular students are struggling because they're in a certain group. And in fact, there's a lot of data across all sorts of educational settings showing, showing that poverty is probably the, the biggest predictor. Students who grow up in really poor environments where their families are struggling even to support them and so on, they're just at a huge disadvantage. You can predict they're going to struggle. And so some people have said, well, you that reduces to zip codes. You can predict how students are going to do in school by their zip code. That's a mailing code that basically tells what area of the country people live in. So what? Does that mean we're not going to accept students from certain zip codes in the universities yeah. because they're likely to fail? As opposed to how do we figure out how to help those particular students? So that's really the kinds of analysis that we've been most interested in is once students are in our program and we see that they're starting to struggle, what kinds of things can we do to help them? So some of the interesting kind of big data analyses that have been done have involved things that we call latent class analysis, which is trying to find whether there are groups of students, in one case, whose behaviors, what they were doing in the courses, predicted that they were likely to fail. And we found some really interesting things. Basically, there were five groups of students in different behavioral categories. And the students in the lowest group basically didn't do anything. We found out that if you could move, you would move them into the next group if you could get them to do one thing in their course, like participate in a discussion or submit one assignment or do anything. So that really led us wow. to focus on how do we help these students just get started because they, for whatever reason, were not. And then every little increase in what students did would significantly improve their chances to stay in the program and, and eventually succeed. And that was kind of an eye-opener for us because people often think, well, students aren't doing anything. If we want them to get A's or B's, they have to be doing all the things that A or B students are doing, which yeah. is a lot. It's too much. You can't get students who are doing nothing to do all those. So that analysis was really an eye-opener and led us to think, actually, let's just focus on seeing if we could get students to do a little bit more than what they're doing and then see what impact that had on their performance. So that's one kind of interesting analysis. Now, what we were talking yeah. about earlier is what if we could do that, not kind of after the fact, do these big data analyses, but what if we could mm -hmm. do it in real time and then intervene along the way for those students? Exactly. That is super interesting. It feels analogous to the sales process at a company where you might have sort of first contact with prospects and you want them to click on your ad, fill out a form, and instead of doing the next yeah. smallest step that can, they can do that takes them forward in the journey. So then you get them more and more engaged over time. It sounds similar, but obviously this, this it, has... It, um, 
higher stakes. No, it is similar, right? and it's a good insight. It, it also um, makes me think that the kind of a relationship between this finding and what individuals face when they're trying to get started on some task they don't want to do. It reminds me of when I was trying to get my dissertation done, for example, a long time ago, where at some point, and I was doing a really large-scale study, and at some point it just seemed like overwhelming. I'm never going to get this done. And I finally just decided, well, if I just work five minutes a day on this, it will get done. <laughs> you know, it might take me 10 years, but it will get done. So I recommended actually another podcast I was doing. Somebody was saying, so do you have any advice for people who are trying to learn about data science and it just seems like too much to do? And my advice is just get started. Doing some little thing will increase your chances, dramatically increase your chances of then moving on and succeeding. As And don't even worry about how far you're going to get. Just get started on do some little thing first. And then after that, see if, well, now could I do another little thing? That kind of idea. Instead of being overwhelmed by all the stuff there is that you have to learn and deal with. That is a wonderful insight. And then from a persistence point of view and helping the students develop that persistence and to continue giving it a go and advancing, as the systems start to intervene more in real time, what do you think that looks like in terms of what is going to be communicated to the students or what could be communicated to the students along their journey? Well, and this goes back to things we've been talking about as we go along, the kind of personalization of responses. What the system does should be tailored to all the information it has about what the student's issues are. So if the student is not persisting, it could be a wide variety of things. We've kind of classified them into a few categories, which is often helpful. So it's not one million different kinds of individual students we have to try to respond to, but maybe four or five categories mm -hmm. that require different kinds of responses. So just to give you a sense of that. One issue is that students who are not persisting may be doing it because they're struggling with the content. And that could be for a number of different reasons. They might not have the prerequisites. That's the things they should have learned before they got into a particular course, let's say. But if they didn't learn them, then it's going to be harder to deal with that course. So what you want to figure out is how do I give them that background knowledge then that they didn't pick up? And you could assess that for a student. So a student is struggling and you might, rather than asking them questions about the stuff they're working Working on, you might back up a little bit and check some stuff they should have known, like the say in high school, they're studying linear equations and struggling with that. Well, maybe it's because they don't know what variables are. They might be able to apply things they learned in arithmetic classes, like about the distributive property or whatever, but they're confused by the variable notation or something like that. So you ask a few questions to try to figure out what are they missing here that's preventing them from doing what they're doing. So part of what you want to do as students struggling is start probing to try to find out what it is for the particular student. And if you've been collecting information along the way about motivational stuff going on, that can be really helpful too. A student is just getting overwhelmed and feeling like, God, you know, I don't know if I can really do this. And a lot of students, particularly in technical areas, start to feel at some point they're not smart enough to do that, to master that content. Yes. And sadly, yeah. we see this in elementary school, students deciding by third or fourth grade that they're not smart in math. And oh. that they start giving up. They don't try as hard if you start to feel that way. So you want to find that out too. And the big message there, so the response for students who are in that category is there's a lot of stuff that's kind of hard to learn. And what you have to do is just hang in there, try to get help, do whatever you can, but just realize that it's hard for everybody, some kinds of content. Yes. If there are people for whom it seems easy, it's because they've done more work before that. So they kind of have more knowledge to start out with. It's usually not because they're just inherently smarter, although there's a few people like that too. But all the evidence, just to digress a little bit here, as you've probably heard, people 
think they become really expert in something, you know, you're kind of really smart or a genius, but all the evidence is, no, it's been 10 years of hard work of trying to get better at something before you can become an expert in it. So everybody, no matter how smart they think they are, has to work hard at things. So that's part of the message for students too. Don't be discouraged. Don't think it's just your problem not being smart enough. And I think we've all had some experience with this where we just see, wow, there's yeah. people doing stuff that I don't know if I could even handle that stuff. Well, you could if you had the same experience and training and education and so on as those people did. And so that's a key message for students too. So anyway, i am just trying to give a few examples of the different kinds of ways you might respond to students if you actually had good data and well-analyzed data about what the problems were for each student. That's exactly right. I love your example. In my case, I found that happened to me. I was in high school and I remember for the longest time, so up until high school, thinking, I'm terrible at maths. I can't do maths and maths is not for me. And thinking, seeing other people and things, saying, oh, you know, they're so much smarter. They can do all this maths and physics and etc. And then when I finally got myself out of that rut, I remember over a a holiday period, I got a literally a book and I said, I'm going to work my way through this book from the beginning and cover the foundations that I had missed before. I did it kind of as an experiment. I said, if I do this, if I fill in the gaps in the knowledge that I have, can I do as good as those people that I think are doing great? I found that the more I learned, the better I did, the more I enjoyed it. And that sort of snowballed into then a career, which is very maths heavy for me. And it was definitely a, a turning point in my life to have that we should, realization, we should. but test it. Sorry? Yeah, I was thinking we, we should make a video of your story. So lots of different systems could use that as an example of, to try to help students who are in that same situation. I mean, all of us have been in, in that in some context, I think, where yes. we were just feeling. And so we didn't even try something because, and it's not just in Correct. learning intellectual content. It can be in physical activities. We just mm -hmm. decide, oh, I'm never going to be a good tennis player before we've actually even you know spent time practicing and not realizing that if you see people who are a lot better than you, it's because they spend a lot more time on it and they've worked. Yeah on it. And being learning something is much more a matter of how much time and effort you're putting in than of your how smart you actually are. You become smart by putting in time and effort, basically. Exactly right. That is the key. And then if you have that belief, that growth mindset, that belief that you can do it, then you are happy to put in the time and effort and, and then you start to get the rewards and it snowballs from there. Yeah. And this, so the kind of thing we're talking about now is the knowledge and information you want to put into a system that could yes. either respond automatically to students if they're studying online or that could provide information to teachers mm -hmm. about how to help different types of students in the classroom. So it would be great to have a big database of these things. So you got, maybe you got a whole class that's just not been doing well in school. And you gave the great example of your own personal experience, but imagine what it's like for students who kind of feel that way about everything that's happening in school that they can't handle any of it. So to get them to even try, you've got to do some work to convince them that you could handle this. I mean, and okay, let's start small. Let's try this first and so on. But this is something that not all teachers are well-versed in or know how to do. I think some teachers just kind of figure it out by their own experience, but it would be great to have databases for teachers where they could just type in issues like this and or maybe even give little quizzes or surveys for their students, put in the data and then get some information about what to do. So I I'm kind of thinking, I mean, there's still lots of students studying in classrooms too. So how can we build kind of data systems that are like assistants for teachers working in students and make those assistants as intelligent as possible? 
that is absolutely fascinating. As you said, you start to help teachers through their training, by giving them training, giving them knowledge from the experience of others, and essentially lifting them and the whole classes up through the process. Yeah, well, that's a great vision in itself, too, because it's not enough. You know, teachers in California will get a bachelor's degree in some subject area and then do an extra year of training to become a teacher. And that's not enough mm. to be a successful teacher. So really, like in any good career, it should be a lifelong learning enterprise. So we could be building these little systems, just like you were talking about, that would be helping teachers learn and become better teachers. They often don't have enough individual mentoring by master teachers who are doing teaching their own class. So they don't have enough time, but we could build database, research-based systems that could fill that gap. Exactly right. And have that assistance. And tell me, how did the book come about? How did you, essentially, where did you get the idea? I think it's, it's please tell me anyway, but I think that's how it's good. But the motivation and to write the book, how did it all come about? Well, it actually started with a project funded by the Gates Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the MacArthur Foundation. And some of the people in those foundations were talking to researchers at different universities, including one of the co-edit, one of my co-editors of the book, Roy P. at Stanford University, um, about education like business in general is kind of prone to fadism. So rather than the research basis for everything, people just look at new and exciting things that they hear about. So any, any new technology that comes about, that comes out, people get excited about. And people were starting to get excited about how data science methods were being successfully used in so many different industries and in medicine and insurance and so on, and wondering if some of the same methods, some of the same data mining and machine learning and deep learning methods and so on could be applied in education. And that question actually led to this formation of the kind of new field that's, I don't know, maybe five or six years since people have been talking about learning analytics. And the real inspiration for it was methods being used to deal with large amounts of data successfully and other enterprises. So the foundations thought, let's get some educators and other people together to talk about how we might test that out, how we might find out how to use data mining and data science methods in general more effectively in education, along the lines that we've been talking about through this whole conversation. So they had a group of researchers, I think there were about 20 or so people representing different perspectives, including some policy people in education, which is oh, kind of, an, yeah, that's an interesting perspective too, because the privacy issues when you're dealing with people under 18 in this country are much more serious than for adults, for teaching adults who can make their own decisions. Of course, now teenagers and younger people don't seem to care about privacy at all when they're on the internet mm -hmm. or whatever and do all sorts of crazy things that are going to hurt them later on. But there are federal regulations and state regulations protecting the privacy of student data. So that's another really important perspective that's even higher stakes for when you're talking about young kids. So anyway, that perspective and several others, and let's get some data mining people, let's get some learning science people just together to kind of talk about how this all should work. And the, the intention was to put together a white paper or some kind of report in the end for various people, for various reasons, people from the foundations moved on and that final publication thing never happened. So I had put together some ideas and kind of a chapter. And so had other people who'd been part of that group and just decided, well, why don't we combine forces here, put our writings together and make a book that's kind of a report on everything we thought about how this field could be built and who should be involved in it. And so that's how the book happened. That is really great. And at the beginning, who do you think in your mind, as you were writing and editing this book, who was it for in your mind at, at that stage? What did you have as the intended audience? 
I think this was the case from the beginning when that working group that I talked about was thinking it would write some kind of a report. It was really initially intended for people who are working in some aspect of the field of learning analytics. And that's a wide range of people. That could have been people who were, you know, are doing traditional educational testing and assessment stuff, the educational measurement people. That's part of learning analytics. It could have been people in universities doing research on how to assess better. So anyway, any of the many different types of people who are working in analytics or people who are studying or interested in becoming someone who works in learning analytics, which mm. could include some data science and other people. And so if you just wanted sort of a broad view, a high level picture of many of the different aspects and what's been done and what some of the prospects are for doing more in the field, then you might be interested in, in the book. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating subject, obviously. Like I'm asking you so many questions and I'm really excited over here. And I think it's such an important area to make progress in. So I wanted to ask you that when the research is done and there's improvements or demonstrated improvements on learning analytics and how it can be applied, how does that look like in terms of the implementation, essentially the rollout of these new practices? What are you seeing in terms of the adoption of this new knowledge? Well, that is a great question and really one of the big issues in education because, as I mentioned earlier, I kind of alluded to this in various ways, there hasn't been a really great uptake of research-based findings in educational practice for a number of reasons. One, it's a lot of the research is published in very academic journals, yes. and you're just a teacher or an administrator in a school or university. You might not be familiar with reading this kind of research, so you wouldn't know even which journals to look at. Now, there have been a few kind of popular summaries of research for teachers and other people, but I don't know how wide, wide they've been distributed. So anyway, a number of reasons. And because administrators and people making decisions and, and faculty who are choosing text books and so on aren't familiar with the research, there isn't much of a demand for there to be research-based decision-making when you choose your curriculum or do anything in your classrooms. People just don't know about it. They don't understand it. And so publishers don't put out materials, although everybody likes to claim they've got research-based stuff now. Mostly it's just stuff that they have traditionally done and they think is easy for teachers to use and so on. So we've got that issue that people don't automatically adopt things just because we've done some nice research showing how effective they are. So this is the question you asked, I think, is still one of the big challenges. But one thing I'm finding to be kind of interesting in education anyway is people like data and they like to believe that they're making decisions based on data. They're often doing it in kind of inappropriate ways. Uh, they might look at some data and then just make a decision that was not informed by those data at all. They just said, look at data, but they, then they're going to do whatever their intuition tells them to do or whatever they were deciding to do before and so on. So we've got some work there to get people to accept that the evidence shows that what you're doing now isn't really working or will work a lot better than whatever you're doing now. The one really encouraging prospect for me is that if we build the kinds of online systems that we've been talking about, it'll be relatively easy to keep augmenting those with more and better kinds of analyses, sort of put together with more research-based activities and instructional stuff. And as we see those things working more effectively online, I think that will start to influence the uptake of 
of some of those strategies by people in classrooms too. And it's actually going to be easier to test the effectiveness of those methods online than it often is in classrooms, where it can be very difficult to test a new idea in a big school district where you're going to randomly select some classrooms to do something and everybody else is going to do something else. It's much more complicated than to try to do something like that online. So I'm looking forward to, and again, we are seeing some examples of this. Unfortunately, at least in this country, some of the big MOOC consortia, some of the universities that started putting their course content on these big open courses didn't do a great job of using yeah. what we know about how to use technology to teach more effectively. All they did was take videos of lectures and put those up there and reading assignments and, you know, people still have to go buy the books or read stuff online. And then it, it kind of fit the same pattern as what I described before. So it wasn't just because you put that stuff online, it didn't mean it was going to work any better than when you were doing it in classrooms. What really matters is the instructional activities themselves. And you can do a lot of things, particularly with respect to personalizing instruction online that are hard to do in classrooms. So they weren't taking advantage at all of those technology capabilities or affordances, but they're starting to. They're starting to move in that direction. And I think what we'll start to see is we learn more and more um, from what's working for students online. And that, at least my hope is, as we get stronger and stronger evidence, and now students are starting to actually learn more online. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has to learn online, but it should mean that now we should start acting, we should start doing more of those effective things in our classroom teaching. Exactly. That would be outstanding. And what are some of the scaled adoptions or what are the, some of the new practices that you're seeing in the online space that you see as encouraging developments? This well, yeah, unfortunately, I wish there were like a hundred of them. <laughs> YouTube, but it's still a pretty new area. And although people have discovered a lot in kind of small scale laboratory settings of what works best when you put things online, the scaling up of that stuff is going to be pretty slow. But the things that are starting to happen that are more encouraging are one of the things is students typically don't get enough practice on whatever it is you want them to do you know, at the end of a course. Yes. So writing is a good example, probably coding or doing anything. I mean, I took all sorts of different courses. I would say it. And even in accounting courses that I had, there was, there was just not enough exercises and not enough tying of what was being done to kind of real contexts. Yes. So you have the opportunity now to provide lots and lots of different scenarios online for students to work with and interact with to get a much better sense of how to apply the knowledge they've got in more real context. So this is an encouraging thing that's starting to happen. And then just more opportunities to do things like write and get feedback. So I'm sure you know, there are a growing number of methods available now for automatically analyzing student writing and giving uh -huh. feedback on it. And it's not always as detailed or constructive as feedback as you want, but it's something. So that allows students to just write more stuff and get information rather than for each course, you write one paper and you get comments back that say inadequate or pedestrian or whatever. They don't really help you at all get better over time. I mean, maybe you could figure that out on your own. So these are the promising, you know, there are many other things that could be happening, but just students getting more practice at doing real applications of what they're learning and getting faster and better feedback on that. I think of the most promising things I've seen across some different settings, online instruction settings, including our own courses, actually, at Kaplan. Right. Interesting. And have you come across anything looking at the depth of knowledge required in order to, I guess, move on to different pathways? So if you think of programming or, yeah, maybe programming is a good one, that you might need some level of understanding in order to do some business roles that work with programmers or 
are adjacent to programmers, but then the same course can continue in depth for the people who are actually programming. Have you seen some new developments around that space? Let's see. I think there are a couple of aspects to that that I was thinking of while you were asking the question. One thing we know from a lot of studies of expertise in any particular area, I mean, one is when you become an expert in one area, that typically doesn't transfer to other areas. If you're an expert in physics, that doesn't mean you know anything about biology or you're going to be a good writer or anything <laughs> else like that. But what, what it does mean is that you have come to the point in whatever your area of physics that you understand and kind of are motivated by the deep principles or first principles in that area, there are some fundamental concepts that kind of drive what you do. So it's kind of the core theories in physics. So there have been many interesting studies showing that when physicists solve problems, for example, they classify the problems in terms of theories and principles of physics, like conservation or momentum or something. When people who are novices look at those same problems, they classify them the basis of very superficial characteristics, like, oh, there's an inclined plane in here, so this must be an inclined plane problem rather than looking at what is the mathematical structure or whatever is going on. So that's one thing I think for if you're going to become an expert in the field, you have to really work on trying to understand what are the big principles at play here? I mean, what are the sort of key ideas that pull all this together and that will help me deal with specific kinds of problems and so on? And I think understanding those is kind of a key to being able to talk to people who don't have that expertise, like let's say the business people you're going to work with or the educators or other people, because they're not going to have the mathematical or technical background to understand the details of what you're doing. But you might be able to convey the, the basic principles that are driving what you're doing. And of course, you can't do that if you don't understand what those are. But my experience in working with physicists and mathematicians, when I was actually doing studies of how what kind of knowledge they have and how they organize it, they're very good at explaining what the core ideas are behind the work that they're doing. But a lot of instructional and coursework doesn't emphasize that kind of yes. building the big picture of what you're doing, which allows you to understand how to do things in a lot of different situations, as opposed to only being able to do exactly the things you've learned how to do in one specific kind of context. So this is one thing and not easy to do. And I mean, one way to do it is just to talk to people who are really expert in the area about when you think about doing a particular code for some particular reason, how do you start thinking about that? Where's your starting point and so on? What, what kinds of ideas are you thinking about when you plan? the actions you're going to take. So that's one thing. But it's another kind of skill, I think, to be able to communicate effectively then with people who are not experts in your field. And that's yes. where you have moved to a level of more abstraction, get out of the weeds and up to some level that deals more with, well, why are you doing it this way? And why is that the right thing to do in the particular context that the business person or whoever it is, educator, medical person, whoever it is you're doing the work for, understands? Great answer. I'm so glad I asked the question because what I was thinking is um, data science training. And I was thinking, of, for example, at my work in the organization, we were going to put everyone through data analytics training at some level. And for some people, it'll be data literacy, for others being able to do simple analysis. And then we're going to further train the data science teams, the data engineering, and the experts in, the, in this particular area. So then what I was thinking is, how do you convey the right information for the people starting in order to create a communication, a language to create collaboration and have that proper 
communication across the different groups to bring the specialties together. And from that perspective, it's exactly what you said around being able to describe the core concepts very well and having that level of abstraction in how the content is covered for people to have a similar starting point. Am I right in saying that? That's exactly right. If you're a data science expert yourself, yes, I would think about it. Well, what do I actually know how to do? And when I'm doing my work, where do I start? How do I think about it? What's driving the decisions I make and so on? And what do I actually do when I'm working on a particular problem? That's basically what you want to get people to be able, other people to be able to do. The trick is, you know, eventually you're going to teach them, where do I start? And it might not necessarily be how you were taught, but um, it might be, well, if I want to get them to this place, I think what they probably need to know first, and you can make the decisions different ways. Some people say, well, let's teach a bunch of skills um, first, and then we'll teach what are the concepts that kind of motivate those skills or, or cause you to do the particular things you do when you're using those skills. I think it's kind of a mixture. I think it's while you're teaching people how to do things, there should be an ongoing discussion of why that's being done that way and in what context you're going to do that. What's the purpose of this particular skill? So that you're building a big picture of things as you go along, as opposed to, okay, well, first I'm going to teach you 150 different skills. And then when we're all done with that, then we'll show you how it fits together. That mostly isn't going to work. I mean, for one thing, it's pretty hard for most people to learn 150 different things anyway. But it gets easier if those things connect together and you're building that bigger picture, then it's easier to remember each of the individual things. So I don't know where in your case where this exact starting point might be, but I think the critical thing is wherever it is to make sure it's clear how it's leading to other things and you're building this big schema of things that's organized around a few key ideas. And I wanted to ask you everything that we've been talking about. How does it relate to your work, to your day-to-day job? You're obviously applying the research into your organization, but how does that come to life for you? Well, one of the big things I'm working on is helping everybody to define better what it means to learn something in their particular area. As I said, we're teaching all sorts of different things. And Purdue Global, they have a thousand different courses, like any kind of university. And then we have financial courses, we have language courses, we have courses designed to help people from some countries get into Australian or US or English universities. So they're kind of prepping them in the course content they need, as well as the English language skills they need and so on. In all of those different contexts, it's a key thing to know how our students are doing. How are we measuring learning? And how are we even defining what learning means? And it's kind of interesting. I mean, I put out the sort of simple definition of learning just means the acquisition of skills or knowledge that you didn't have before. For some reason, this is partly the fault of educational measurement experts. People decide things like, well, I'm going to give a 100-item test. And if a student gets 70% right, then they're okay for this course or 80% or whatever. What I would typically say is, you know, when I look at 80% on some tests, I have no idea from that. Or if I look at a GPA that you give me a student as a 3.5, I don't know what skills they've mastered. So let's change this a little bit and try to figure out what exactly are the skills and how are you going to measure each one of them? And it's not going to be good enough to give 100 multiple choice items for many different kinds of skills. You're going to actually want people to write a piece of code, write a financial report or whatever. And then how are you going to judge the quality of those to tell you whether the student has done that? well enough or not. So this is really what I'm spending a lot of my time working with people on now. And as you and I have been talking about, having those data are kind of the critical thing, a benchmark for using all of the other data you have about students more effectively. Exactly right. And how do you maximize the impact of your time through your working with your team? What are some of the ways that you prioritize and make all this impact? 
I'll say something that isn't exactly the answer to that, but one thing I'm trying to do in general, and I'm hoping to make this possible for other people too, is just kind of think more and do less. It's too easy to just get caught up with why I've got deadlines and racing ahead to do things. We know from all sorts of studies of people who, who are really good at things that they spend more, people who are successful at getting things done spend more time upfront thinking about and planning than the people who are more novices and just kind of plunge in and start doing things. And maybe they've gone in the wrong direction and they have to change direction and all that. And I see that happening all the time. People just try things because they feel they have to get started and make a deadline. So they meet the deadline, but it didn't work. And now they've got to do it over again. And you just sort of repeat this process, a standard thing across all educational enterprises and lots of businesses that I know about too. I saw this interesting little... Um, clip was actually on the Charlie Rose show where Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. And Bill Gates said, one of the most amazing things I learned from Warren Buffett is that you have to not fill up your day with stuff to do. You have to allow time to think about what you're doing and how it's working and plan it out, not fill it up with meeting. Not everybody has the freedom to do this. I mean, both those guys are in positions where they could do this now, but Warren Buffett gave him his calendar and his calendar was a little booklet. He didn't <laughs> have a computer calendar. So Charlie Rose and Bill Gates looked at one week and the next month or something. And Warren Buffett had three things in his calendar for a, a whole week. <laughs> and he said, it's because I'm thinking, I'm constantly working on things and so on. So in my prioritizations, that, that's one of the things I'm trying to do more of is to make sure, and this can involve reading and talking to other people too, and just kind of thinking through, getting cle really clear on what you want to do before you launch into doing it. It's sort of interesting what happens to me in prioritizing. I'll, like everybody, make the decision about what is just absolutely critical to get done now and if it doesn't happen, there's some big disaster. Some of the other things that I'll put aside, I don't know if you've had this experience too, sometimes some of them just go away completely as a priority. Somebody decides, yes. oh, we're not going to do that anymore and whatever. An amazing number of things that happens on to me on too. So for me, those are the really deciding what's going to be a huge disaster to the company if it doesn't happen right now. I mean, if I think it's not worth doing though, that's something I've started to, I mean, everybody, if you can have the opportunity or push back on things that just don't make sense to do, those are huge time wasters too. Things you know are not going to work or going to be a waste of time. Now, you can't do that with every manager, but that to me, I mean, at least I'm in the position now where I, where I can do that. And I hope everyone eventually gets some leeway to do that because you often have managers asking for things that you wish you didn't have to bother doing. And getting those out of the schedule might allow more time to actually think about what you're doing and learn more about how to do what you're doing more effectively. That's right. Think more, do less, sharpen yeah. the saw. And what would you like your contribution to be to your field. And the reason why I asked this question is because essentially what I said towards the very beginning of our interview, that I find your professional pursuits as something extremely important, both in education, in business, in science, so applicability across the board. And I think it's a extremely necessary pursuit and a very noble pursuit. I wanted to ask you about what you want your contribution to the industry be, because I, I have a sense that it's something that drives you and that has helped you in your journey to guide you to where you are today. What would you say or what would you like to your contribution to the industry be? I like this question, but I'll start off with sort of a non-answer to it. A long time ago, I was, or a while ago, I was working with a woman who was an educational assessment policy expert, and she was actually pretty much world famous in that area, working with uh, school districts and states and the U.S. government and Congress, and actually international agencies and other countries on how students should be assessed and tested. That was sort of her field, which is just a side thing. But she told me at one point that when she started her career, her goal was really to change education in a way that 
that would change the world and solve many serious problems in the world, just better educated people, better citizens and all that. But now, as she said, at towards the end of her career, her only real goal was to avoid personal humiliation. <laughs> I kind of get that too. I mean, when you work in enough difficult situations, you kind of get to the point where if I just weren't so humiliated by people all the time, I'd be kind of happy with what I'm doing. Like to have achieved is to have, in, at least in some way for some people, made learning easier and helped more students to achieve their learning goals and done that in a number of ways, including helping to make teachers' jobs easier too. Because I was a teacher for a long time and like a lot of people, found it very difficult and a big struggle. And I think we know enough to make that happen. We just haven't been doing it. And there are so many students who are not being well served in education. I still want to do whatever my small part is to try to help fix that at both K-12. And now I'm really focused more on the higher education level. But you see a lot of the K-12 problems because students just aren't learning what they should be for all sorts of reasons. And it's a hard job for teachers, so I'm not blaming them, at least not totally. Anyway, we've got all these big problems in education. And my hope is just to have um, done something to help uh, make things a a little better in many of these areas. Something extremely, extremely important, especially the way that life is these days, that we all need to be lifelong learners. Having a better understanding of how people learn best and working towards being able to create almost a platform that allows you to create your own adventure with learning in terms of following your, the path that's customized to you. I think that is an outstanding uh, pursuit to contribute on that. I think that's a great way to articulate it, too. And I hope it's obvious through this discussion that for people who are interested in various acts of areas of data science, there are right now and tremendous opportunities to work in educational areas. More and more students are studying online. The amount of data is just increasing exponentially every day. We're kind of, it's like we're on the shore of this huge data ocean and either we're going to turn our backs and pretend it's not there and wait till the data just floods us over or we're going to jump in and try to swim in there. Anyway, there will be more and more opportunities for anyone who might be interested in trying to grapple with any of the things we've been talking about. Definitely. And we do need good people to jump in, good data scientists, and, and to help progress this for everyone, really. David, that is a fantastic note to end on. This has been brilliant. Thank you again for your time. And thank you so much for your work, for your pursuits, for your book, for your efforts, and when you bring it into the world. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for this opportunity, for all the great questions and your insights. I really enjoyed it. So thanks again. Data Source Services is Australia's leading executive search and recruitment provider to the data and analytics industry. Data Source is chosen by many of Australia's most successful and innovative analytics teams, working closely to understand customer needs and deliver the top performing candidates in the Australian market. From executives and directors through to project managers, BAs and technical specialists, our deep networks allow us to source the highest calibre of candidate. Our consultative and personalised approach to the recruitment process ensures the highest level of service and care across both contracting and permanent roles. Whether you're looking to hire or searching for your next career move, please contact will at datasourceservices.com.au for more information. Exciting news, listeners. University of New South Wales has launched a new Master of Data Science and it's 100% online. They have designed this program to deliver the skills that are in the highest demand and most difficult to find. It covers the advanced stats, programming, machine learning, and strategy areas you need to be able to call yourself a true data scientist. To find out more, visit studyonline.unsw.edu.au. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. 
please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.